It's been 41 years since John Carpenter's classic The Fog landed in theaters. And here at Rewind of the Living Dead, we actually recorded an episode about The Fog uh, several months ago, but we didn't release it because we realized that the anniversary would be coming up sooner rather than later. So we have held on to that episode, and as part of our special Lost episode series, we now present to you this special edition of Rewind of the Living Dead as we talk about John Carpenter's The Fog. Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by Germ Death Hand Sanitizer, the only hand sanitizer with 66.6% ethyl alcohol, the best kind of alcohol that you want in your hand sanitizer. I use Germ Death all the time. I love the scent. I've told you a million times, black leather is the way to go. It's my favorite scent, but they got a ton of other great scents. You can check them out at germdeath.com. Visit them on Facebook and Instagram at germdeath. Rewind of the Living Dead is also brought to you by reanimatedrecords.com, your one-stop shop for DVDs, VHS, vinyl, other types of music, cool t-shirts. Rewind of the Living Dead fans, you want to go to a place like reanimatedrecords.com. They got everything you love and need. Fair warning, Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. Following the massive success of his breakout film Halloween in 1978, Director John Carpenter inked a two-film deal with Avco Embassy Pictures for his next two follow-ups. Because he was known for the horror genre after creating one of the most iconic slashers in history with Michael Myers, Carpenter was expected to follow that up with another terrifying film. The inspiration for his next film came during a trip to England with his producing partner and then-girlfriend Deborah Hill when they visited Stonehenge. At the time they visited, Carpenter remarked at the creepy fog bank that had rolled across Stonehenge, and he wondered what could be hiding inside it. That was enough to spark an idea for a story that Carpenter and Hill wrote together about a group of settlers who conspired to crash a clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane, captained by a man named Blake, who was attempting to find a home for his leper colony in the area. The sabotage killed Blake and all of his people, and his gold was used to town to found the town of Antonio Bay. But a hundred years later, the doomed captain returns for revenge. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to crank up the sultry sounds of Stevie Wayne and batten down the hatches on the seagrass as we review the 1980 classic, The Fog. Living Dead. I am Damon Martin. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, tonight, uh, for the first time, we are actually going to review a film from my favorite horror director, Mr. John Carpenter. I am a self-professed John Carpenter fanboy, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. Thank goodness. I mean, John Carpenter is an absolute living legend in the game of horror. There's there's nobody quite like John Carpenter. His movies are singular. His sound is singular. We're going to have to talk about that a lot tonight. Um, a real auteur in the business, somebody who stands out. And it's kind of crazy that 
I know he's done other things, but John Carpenter, it's crazy that John Carpenter didn't make the jump and become a Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, who, you know, those guys got their start in genre film as well. Um, it's crazy to me that he he didn't make the the bigger like Toby Hooper made a bigger jump, in my opinion, than John Carpenter ever did. He did. They did. And it, it is kind of weird. But, you know, listen, I think uh, one I mean, listen, I, I'm never going to I'm never going to fault a director for spreading his wings and going out or spreading her wings and going out and, and directing films of a different genre or, or doing more of a passionate thing that they love. So I'm not saying anyone should be pigeonholed into one genre or another. I don't think any, anybody should only be a comedic actor, actress or director or whatever any more than I think it should be in horror. That being said, the one benefit of John Carpenter being kind of pigeonholed as a horror director is we have gotten so many great films out of him. I mean, starting, mm-hmm. of course, with Halloween, but also, I mean, again, you talk about The Fog, which came out, you know, a couple of years later. You talk about uh, The Thing, which was a classic. You talk about... Amazing. Uh, you, you talk about, uh, you know, Prince of Darkness, which I absolutely love. You talk about Vampires, which I mentioned on the show before, was not... A lot of people didn't love that movie. I loved that movie. Uh, you know, you, you, just again, these are all movies that you're getting because John Carpenter was in the horror genre. Uh, and li- like I said, I'm not really going to complain about that because I have no problem admitting he is my absolute favorite director in horror. Uh, he doesn't really direct much, you know, doesn't direct anything really these days. He's more focused on his music and doing things like that, which is fine. Uh, but I love, you know, I love John Carpenter's work and, and I've been a big fan of his since, you know, the first time I ever saw anything he made. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think I've ever seen of his was probably Halloween, which I think is where a lot of people got their start with John Carpenter. And of course, that that amazing score gets right into your brain. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody's I mean, like like name us name a Spielberg score that like immediately gets in your head. You go, oh, Jaws. Okay, great. Jaws horror film, Halloween horror film. Like they kind of stand, like I would say more people probably, well, no, more people probably do know Jaws, but like it's right up there with him, right up there with Steven Spielberg, who is Mr. Hollywood, who's the the mayor of all of Hollywood is Steven Spielberg. And right below him is John Carpenter with the, with the, the very iconic, uh, 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 score that he put together for Halloween. Of course, the thing, which is a movie, uh, it's one of the most rewatchable movies I've ever seen. It's incredibly well done. Um, he's done. You talk about Kurt Russell, um, he, Carpenter and Russell together. What a team, you know, like Scorsese, it's like Scorsese and DiCaprio. I mean, we are talking about a great, we're not talking about, oh, wow. You know, we really like this guy and he does these cool things. And he's underappreciated. I think he's like, he's appreciated. I just, I can't believe there isn't like more John Carpenter out there in the world, like for the grander audiences, because he really truly is a guy who can do it all. He's like a James Cameron, like uh, like Steven Spielberg, or like George Lucas. John Carpenter's that guy. John, Carper- John Carpenter can do it all and has done it all and proves it. In every one of his movies, they're incredibly, incredibly well-crafted. And uh, tonight, Damon, tonight we're talking about The Fog. I've actually never seen The Fog before we did this, which is, you know, like sacrilege to some people. But truth be told, it's one of those movies that just slipped right through my fingers. It was one of those things I never ended up seeing it. And we were talking about it. You had told me you're a major Fog fan. And I want to actually learn a little bit about your history with The Fog. When did you start 
watching the fog like when's the earliest memory for you of watching the fog you know i i I can't remember exactly when it was i know it was in the late 80s early 90s when i was still you know a kid very much a kid who probably shouldn't be watching horror films but i remember watching halloween halloween was my first introduction to john carpenter but i will say i was not a giant Halloween fan. I've said on this show many times, I was a Nightmare yeah, on Elm Street fan growing up. I was a Freddy Krueger guy, wrote a fan letter to Robert England, have an autograph photo of Robert England from when he sent it back to me when I was like seven years old that I still have tucked away in a drawer somewhere. It says, see you in your dreams, Robert England. I am still, I was the Nightmare on Elm Street kid. So Halloween was not my favorite. Jason was not my favorite. Freddy mm-hmm. was my favorite. So I can't remember how I eventually stumbled onto more Carpenter movies, but I do remember watching The Fog and Prince of Darkness within a pretty short period of time of each other. Uh, And I remember renting them as a kid, as a video, going to the video store and renting both of them. Now, I don't remember which order I watched them in. I just remember loving both films. And to this day, The Fog and Prince of Darkness remain two of my all-time favorite horror films. Uh, But I remember watching it, and it was just a... What I loved about The Fog, I remember watching it when I was a kid. I remember what I loved about it was, is it was, it was, to me, it was, it was atmospheric horror at its best. It was, it was dread. And I know you talk about dread a lot on this show. Mm -hmm. That's what I loved about it. It was such great atmospheric dread because it was a town. It was a town beset by this creepy supernatural fog and it all takes place over the course of basically 24 hours more or less i mean it starts one night and then you know continues on to the next night and that's when really mayhem hits the town and it's just a really gorgeously self-contained story uh and i just remembered loving it because it wasn't at that time when i was a kid all i knew were slasher films all i knew were you know freddie jason michael myers and even like, you know, like Prom Night and other films like that. Like, that's what I knew best. Now, I'd seen other horror films, but you know, Night of the Living Dead, of course, was an iconic one. Of course, that was one of the first horror films I ever saw. But slashers are what I knew best. And slashers are what I love best. And to this day, remain what I love best. But this was a different film. It, it was supernatural horror. And it was a ghost story. At the end of the day, it's a ghost story, but not the ghost story we're seeing now. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not taking a shot at like The Conjuring or other ghost stories out there, but this was a different kind of ghost vengeance kind of story. They're not, it wasn't a haunted house. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Most ghost stories, most ghost stories these days taking place are, are haunted house stories. And again, I'm not taking a shot at that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that's typically what you see with a ghost story these days. And this wasn't that. And I know I've said this on the show a million times and i also remember this is one of the things i loved about it it was a great story i mean they they hit you with it right up front from the moment that that you know rock falls down and the diary is exposed to father malone and he reads this diary and and that's actually one of the creepiest most well done moments in this entire movie is when he's just reading that diary to mrs williams who is played by the great janet lee of course uh, jamie lee curtis's mother Uh, he's reading to her the plot by, you know, his grandfather, you know, father Malone to crash Blake's ship, steal his gold and, and, and basically found the town of Antonio Bay, uh, to stop a leper colony from moving into the area. And it's just, a, it, again, it's, it's, it's a simple story. I understand it's not the most you know, intricate story, not a big mystery or anything like that, but it's just the, the heart of it. It, it. it sets the stage for a great ghost story. And again, I've said a million times over, I'll sacrifice great effects and great gore and all that. I'll sacrifice that for a great story. And this to me had a great story. It, you know, I thought it, I thought it paralleled something really great. Now, 
the fog for those who are like me who hadn't seen it before. Um, it's set on a coastal town. And uh, I've actually spent a lot of time in these very specific coastal towns that they filmed in. Uh, you, these days, we shoot a lot of like car commercials and stuff out there. It's very scenic. Um, they, they, they make for incredibly great atmosphere. And you know coastal towns are known for one thing, and that's for their tales. Fishermen have tales. And very much so, this movie kind of revolves around the idea of the tale of this, of how this town got started. And you, and just like Damon said, um, you know, they, 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 they cross this group, they cross Blake and his, and his, and his men, um, and they found this town basically under a curse. And, and the great, um, uh, uh, what's his name? John, uh, where's his name? Damn it. I had it. Hal Holbrook, the great Hal Holbrook plays the the town priest, Father Malone, and he and he explains in the early go that damn it, we're actually running up on the 100 year anniversary of screwing over some pirates. Basically, is what they're saying. We stole their gold, and uh, and something's a coming, you know. And and that's if, right away you get into kind of the ghost story, tall tale. Uh, coastal town vibe like there's an atmosphere that's set and this is something that John Carpenter you know I'm praising him for his abilities his ability to set the stage he sets the stage very clearly very like you you don't you, there's no mystery to what's going on they lay it out for you it's coming be ready you know so that we talk about establishing dread they establish dread very clearly for you um, you know it's done in a different way than movies do it today movies do it today in a much more like I don't want to say somber, but you know, there, there's there's a certainly it's lost a little bit of its color, a little bit of the performative uh, style of acting that that uh, some of the older actors are known for doing. Janet Lee, you mentioned um, Hal himself. Uh, some Tom Atkins plays a plays a role in this. Adrian Barbeau is the star of the film. She plays the uh, the, the the town DJ who looks over the ocean and and talks about the weather and talks about the fishermen and all she's kind of like the voice of the town so there's all this storytelling going on so you get into that but i did notice on my first viewing of this movie at 40 years old it wasn't getting me it wasn't digging in it wasn't it wasn't getting under my ribs and i have a theory here uh, a, a while back on Twitter, this guy, I think he, he's a pretty well-known, I wish I could remember his name, but he's a, he's a well-known uh, film critic. And he said that he sat down with his kids and he played them back to the future. And they could give a shit. Like they were <laughs> super bored with it. And he was like, I was floored. My kids did not care about Back to the Future. They just didn't. And then someone asked, like, well, how old are your kids? And he goes, uh, 15 and 17. And I went, bam, there's your problem. They're jaded. They're already jaded. They're 15, 17 years old. They got iPods. They got all this stuff in the world. that they're, they're, Their heads have already been flushed of magic. But Damon, our, our faithful host, Damon, saw the fog when he was in his young years, probably around between 10 and 12, are we guessing? Somewhere oh, in probably there? younger than that. Probably like eight okay. or nine, yeah. Okay, eight or eight or it's great, eight or nine. And I thought to myself, when I when I'm when I'm hearing this guy talk about Back to the Future, I go, that's where you screwed up, pal. You show Back to the Future to your six-year-old. You you show Back to the Future to somebody who believes in magic. And it will it will get into their DNA and it, you'll they'll never let go of them. And it'll be a magical experience. And I've done it. I've showed my kids Back to the Future. 
I, they have like tears in their eyes. They love it so much because it, it, it's, it's just like, oh my God, look at all the possibilities. Now, horror gets you the same way, in my opinion. There, there's a reason that I think um, uh, certain films stick with people. A lot of it is because, you know, Dan and I talked about this. We saw a lot of movies way too young. Um, I bet if I saw any any iteration of uh, uh, of the Friday the 13th movies in my grown-ass man stage, I'd have been like, these are fucking stupid. Why does anybody <laughs> watch these? But I saw them when I was six and seven years old. And it left a lasting impression with me. And I saw uh, little Reagan from The Exorcist when I was like six or seven years old. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it gets into your structure. And it gets into your DNA. So I think when I first sat down with The Fog, and I, and it's, by the way, it's not like just like, oh, one of Damon's favorite movies. It's like one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite movies. I guarantee you it's one of Eli Roth's favorite movie. I guarantee you it's on Tarantino's top 100 list of all time. Guaranteed. Yeah. Because those guys got it at a young age. And uh, and I just so happened, uh, while we're, while we're uh, reviewing or get, getting ready for this show, my father-in-law comes in from Idaho uh, he's a guy in his sixties. And I asked him, I go, Hey, did you, did you see the fog when, when it first came out? And he goes, yeah, actually I did. I go, what did you, what were your impressions? And he goes, scary as shit, <laughs> you know, because back then horror was, was still a, a certain way. And there was no, there were, there were very few movies to jade you, you know? And he's like, man, but whenever that fog came out, I was so terrified of whatever was behind, inside that fog and the unknown that see it's all that all that uh that non-jaded kind of uh, uh sensibility of the viewer it was there. I was too jaded when I watched the fog the first time. So the second time around, I saw the genius, I saw the the atmosphere, I saw the brilliant directing and Damon, let's talk about the fact that John Carpenter is probably one of the greatest composers in Hollywood history. Absolutely. Let me before we get to that. Let me backtrack because Please. we've had this conversation before. Nostalgia plays a big part in what you love and what you remain loving. You know, yes. we've talked about this on the show many times. The Monster Squad is a show that you and I both share as one of our all time favorite films. It holds up to this day. But I also think a big reason. I'm not. I'm not digging. Trust me. I freaking love Monster Squad. I'm just saying. Like. The, and and I showed the Monster Squad to my girlfriend who you know hadn't seen it and she's younger than me but I showed it to my girlfriend and she loved it so it worked on that level as well but my point is is with the Monster Squad it, it it's in my DNA I saw it when I was you know eight or nine mm -hmm. years old whatever it was it is it, it will forever be one of those films that I will talk about and love from now until the day I die. And the fog and, and and again, I've talked about this on the show. A big passion of my, a big part of my horror DNA comes from eighties horror, going to the video store, renting oh. movies that are based on a VHS cover and just seeing something cool, renting it, going home and watching it and loving it. And that's where I discovered the fog Prince of darkness. That's where I discovered Norman Elm street. That's where I discovered Friday the 13th. That's where I discovered a lot of movies, just going to the video store, renting something and saying, let's check this out. And so you're absolutely right. For point blank, you're absolutely right as far as the nostalgia and, and, and embedding something in your head as a child. A great example of that would be while my girlfriend absolutely loved Monster Squad, we went back maybe like six months ago 
and we watched Poltergeist, the original Poltergeist, Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a kid, and I'm not trying to get too far off the subject, but when I was a kid, that movie scared the living shit out of me. I mean, Same. so the scene where the little boy gets attacked by the tree, okay, a very famous scene in the movie. Now, I had a tree just like that outside my window as a kid. And when it would, and we lived right by a major road, so cars would drive by our house all the time, and the lights would flicker off the tree, and I'd see the shadow of the tree in my room at night okay after seeing poltergeist i couldn't sleep for like two weeks i was convinced my tree was gonna eat me okay i was scared to death now i showed that movie to my girlfriend six months (laughs) ago and she's like that wasn't scary much less was it like actually good like the effects were kind of cheesy now and like wasn't really scary at all and i was like what are you talking about i was like this is one of the scariest movies of all time (laughs) and like i kind of forget it's because i saw it at a time when i'm not saying like I'm not saying because I was a little kid. I'm saying I saw it when I was an impressionable person. Like when I was, yes. you know, that was the film at the time. Now I'm sure people of today's age would say, oh my God, the conjuring or, you know, we've talked about, we had sinister on this show. That kind of movie is the scariest movie of all time. And you talk to people who are, you know, who were alive in the late seventies, early eighties. And they would say, no, Halloween is, you know, they, they, you'd have that argument with people yeah. and it's a generational thing. So for me, the fog definitely falls into that. Now, when I watch the fog now, and I just rewatched it tonight and my girlfriend joked to me, she's like, why are you watching this? I said, we're reviewing it on the podcast. And she's like, why you see it a thousand times. And I was like, I just want to see it again. The fog has become a comfort movie to me. Like it's terms mm-hmm. of horror films. The Fog is a comfort film for me. I know that sounds bizarre to think of a horror film as a comfort film, but that's what it is to me. The Fog, Prince of Darkness, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. There are certain films that I've seen so many times that I just, it just makes me feel good. Like I remember what it was like to see that movie for the first time and the way it made me feel. And it just, it just brings me back. And so the Fog is very much one of those movies. Now, getting back to your other point, talking about the score. It's funny you mentioned that because you sent me over the categories for tonight's show, and we're going to talk about those in a little bit. Best line, best performance, best scare, all those kind of things are going to come up. The one thing you didn't mention was the score, but even though you didn't mention it, you didn't mention the score. Okay, I understand. I understand. Right. You didn't mention it, but I was ready. Now, I would argue, Patrick, now listen, I understand there's a, 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 a credible great composers out there, the most famous of which in films is probably John Williams. Of course, John, John Williams, Williams created the Star Wars theme, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws. You, know, you hear those themes. Superman. Iconic. Yeah, iconic. You hear it. Dun, 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 dun. You know, okay? Yeah. Now, I'm not denying John Williams is probably the most famous, the most prolific score, you know, uh, composer in movie score history. I'll give him that title because he is freaking awesome. I love Star Wars. Right? I love all those movies. I have Star Wars stuff all over my house. So trust me, I'm, I'm okay with that. But when you talk about horror and you talk about, you know, science fiction, let's say, beyond John Williams... I would argue there's no better composer and no more iconic composer 
then John Carpenter, and he's turned this into a new career for himself because now he goes on tour and actually does full-on concerts where he just plays his synth music. And I've list- I have I have several of his albums on vinyl. Just went out and bought his newest one a few weeks ago when it came out. Uh, John Carpenter's music is such a huge part of his films, and he is so damn good at creating whatever atmosphere he wants for his movies through his music. Halloween, of course, the most iconic, but I would argue that fog theme, when you hear that, man, oh, so good. it is creepy as shit, and it works so well in this movie. Even in the first viewing, where I was, I'm not lie, I'm going to lie, Damon, I, I was bored. I was not interested in this film when I watched it the first time around. That When that score hit, I go, Jesus fucking Christ, John Carpenter's the best composer of all time. Like, he's so good. Like, you couldn't deny that if you tried it. He's just that good at composing. And it and like if you didn't have a, a sense of the dread and and the atmosphere and everything like that score would would just hit it home for you. And you'd be like, OK, I'm in. I know what I know what's going on now. And I couldn't deny that. I go, damn, I'm not feeling this movie. But man, that score is killer. So good. Yeah. Really so good. And I guarantee you uh, he is he is in the top maybe the top three, maybe the top two. I don't know. I mean, John Williams is amazing. There's Murakoni, who was a highly, highly influential guy. Um, Zimmer's really good. He does amazing stuff, but I wouldn't call his stuff as memorable as either of those guys. But Carpenter, I mean, come on with that score. That score is amazing. And I didn't mention it in my in my in my list of things, but I go, I know Damon's gonna pull the score on this stuff. There's no way he wouldn't. How would he not? Yeah. Uh, I, I was a bit rushed to try and actually get this thing going. Um, but yeah, I mean, the score is incredible. Like it's so good. It's like, oh, I'm well, I'm getting that soundtrack for damn sure. I mean, ah, man, I don't know. It just blows me. Like you could just end, you could end it there and just go, the score is awesome. So go watch the movie. And that's all that matters. Yeah. It's so funny because when you think about a great movie, there's so many elements of what can make or break a movie. You know what I mean? Like you can think about a great movie, but with a really, really bad performance from a cast or, or a lead character, a lead actor, and it doesn't ruin it, but it definitely takes things down a notch. Like you're just, you, you get taken out of a movie sometimes when there's a performance that's just, you can't connect with for whatever reason, or, you know, again, I'm a writer. This is what I do. We're both writers. This is what we do. Uh, when there's really bad or cheesy or dumb dialogue, it doesn't make sense. And, and we've picked a plot, you know, we've picked apart plots on this show before where we were just like mind boggled of like some of the decisions being made by the writers. So there are certain things that could just take you out of a movie. You know what I mean? It could just take you out of a movie on the same, on the same third line as that there's things that could elevate a movie, you know, great yep. dialogue, great plot. As I mentioned, I'm a plot guy. I love a great plot. And score. And, and and John Carpenter, I mean, time after time after time, his scores deliver. Uh, I mean, I have a record, and a vinyl record of just his all-time greatest hits from scores, from Halloween, The Fog, Prince of Darkness, um, you, know, uh, you know, Escape from New York, like all those movies, you know, the thing, everything he's ever composed, the, like the theme of those movies is on this record, and I just listen to it because it's just good. Um, but it elevates everything. Now, the other thing I'll say about this movie, beyond, again, I like the plot, uh, when you think about horror movies of 
certain eras and you think about lower budget and this film at the time was considered a lower budget film and John Carpenter actually even though he didn't have a massive budget he still shot it in widescreen because he refused to not make it look good in that way he knew he didn't have a ton of money yeah. to play with but he still shot it in that in that um widescreen kind of way so it still looked like a theater movie you know what I mean it still looked like a, a good well-made movie and to me I didn't think it was low budget at all when I watched it I mean I still think it looks no, great it doesn't but feel low budget at all but what I love about this film is the performances you get I mean when you think about the cast okay now you get Tom Atkins who of course is a horror icon uh you know uh, Halloween 3 uh, Night of the Creeps you know he's been a ton of stuff great actor you get Jamie Lee Curtis to come back after Halloween, and this was when she was on her Scream Queen run from this to Prom, Prom Night, Terror Train, all these films in a row. You get Adrian Barbeau, who's a, a phenomenal actress, who at the time was actually John Carpenter's wife. He wrote mm -hmm. the role specifically for her, but she's great, and I've seen Adrian Barbeau in a lot of different things. She's a great yeah. actress. You combine Hal Holbrook, who, you know, rest in peace, just recently passed away. Hal Holbrook is genius. I mean, the guy, I think, I think he won an Oscar. I know he's been nominated. Uh, and he's won Emmys, I'm pretty sure, as well. He was in Sons of Anarchy towards the end. He played Jim's father on that show. Uh, Hal Holbrook is an all-time classic. Janet Lee, of course, one of the greatest scream queens in history. Psycho, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. But, I mean, there's so many, like, really well-done roles in this movie. And, again, we've talked about this before. It's just like when we talked about Sinister in a previous episode. When you can get Ethan Hawke to, like, you know, to anchor your movie, yeah. you're going to elevate the movie no matter how good or bad it is. The fact that you have, like, a really good actor at the center of the role, uh, at the center of the movie. And this one has a lot of them. And, and that helps elevate this movie along with the score. And, again, I'm saying this knowing I loved everything about this movie, from the plot to the dialogue to the score but i'm saying those extra pieces make it better well I, you know what it is is like it, like it's really john carpenter showing off like his great influences which is it, it it very much harkens back to like the hitchcockian era um it has a late 50s six early 60s feel to it and you bring in these these high level actors. Everybody's great. Adrian Barbeau is fantastic. Jamie Lee Curtis um, is is an ingenue at the time, but you know she's got a, a charm about her. Janet Lee, of course, a complete veteran. Um, all these actors they do elevate the scenes, and they and they're given their time to shine. But I do say this as someone who's removed enough from it to kind of criticize it if I if I dare, but. I, the one storyline that stood out to me was was Father Malone's, played by Hal Holbrook, and I thought to myself, I would, I think I would like this movie more if it was really weighted heavily on his story, because he's got a lot of story. He actually has the most story out of anybody there, the most character uh, development and all that stuff, and there there was like a big arc to his story that I thought was a little untapped. Like it, there could have been so much more to it, and of course the guy kills it as an he's a fantastic actor, one of the one of the finest. So like I was a little bummed because we kind of get pulled in the directions when you do have all these great people on the screen. I'm sure Carpenter felt the need to kind of give them their time to do their thing. The the one actress and I love Adrian Barbo actually you know the Swamp Thing I I'm, I'm I'm one of these guys who's obsessed with Swamp Thing so I know Adrian Barbo especially from that. Um, but she's been in a ton of other things that I've enjoyed and, and had a lot of fun with. I could have done with less of her character. I know that there were I, I know the logic of what her character was up to and why it was there. But there to me, there were more interesting characters to mine from. 
uh, Father Malone being at the very top of that list. Even Janet Lee's character, Kathy, again, somebody really tied to the town and all that stuff. Like the, the, the time spent with Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis's characters. But Damon, hitchhiking must have been a different deal back in 1980. Oh, Because this was. young girl gets picked up by like a 40-something-year-old guy. And the, in the middle of the night, he she jumps in his truck. All the windows completely explode. <laughs> and then they go back well, to his house and have a good night together, if you know what I'm saying. Here's and I was what like, I'll, is this what hitchhiking is like in the 80s? Oh, here's what I'll say. And again, I, I know I, I become a little bit more defensive of, of films like this because I love it. I I will agree with you on the, on the, on the Hal Holbrook side. I could have absolutely used more of him, and I could have absolutely seen that story explored a bit further. I understood he was kind of like the backbone of the story. He discovers this diary from his grandfather, and this is you know, he finds out that this entire town is based on a lie. You know, they're celebrating the 100 year anniversary of Antonio Bay. And he's like, this is all a lie. Like we did not, you know, we founded this on, we founded this town on, on treachery and, and, and sabotage and, and murder, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I absolutely, I, I would agree with you. I could have used more of that. And I think you could have, you know, injected him more things, get him out of the church a little bit, maybe have him, you know, go to the library, do research, yeah. whatever it is. I I'm full. I'm all for that. In terms of in terms of Adrian Barbeau's character, the Stevie Wayne character, she becomes the voice of the movie. And yeah. later on, when the fog actually rolls in and she's kind of like warning the town of what's coming for it, I kind of enjoy that because it's kind of like the, you know, the Paul Revere, you know, that, you know, the, the, the warning sign coming for you. You know, I kind of enjoyed that. Like, I kind of enjoyed that radio element of it. I don't know. Maybe it's just it was just a fun, like different way of like the town crier, you know, the old town town crier kind of thing. She's informing people that there's something coming for them. But what I liked about Tom Atkins character and Jamie Lee Curtis's character, like Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, really has no bearing necessarily on this movie. She's a hitchhiker yeah. from out of town, but you get a chance to put Jamie Lee Curtis in your movie. You put Jamie Lee Curtis in your movie. That being said, she does tie back in because once she meets Tom Atkins, character, which by the way, his name is Nick Castle. Nick Castle is the guy who played Michael Myers in the original Halloween. So there's the character name getting based on the actor from Halloween. Mm -hmm. Nick Castle, the character, ties back into the story because he's really good friends with the guys who run the Seagrass, which is the clipper ship who gets taken. You know, they get wiped out by the Elizabeth Dane and by Captain Blake at the very start of the movie. And so he ties back into like looking for his friends who never came home home and so i like that they tied that back and they gave him purpose because he was trying to find out what happened to his friends on this ship and so that's how he kind of becomes intrinsical to the plot and and i and i enjoy that because again one of my biggest issues when the, you have these weird plot things in some in some of the lesser horror films and we've talked about these on the show where we're like what in the hell was he doing there like why like what purpose does this right. character serve and what I like about Nick's character, Tom Atkins, is he actually does tie back into the story. You know what I mean? Now, you you could say that the Jamie Lee Curtis character didn't really play as much, and why was she there? But again, it's just introducing her to go along with Nick, and then you find out that Nick is tied back into the seagrass, and he's trying to find out what happened to his friends. But, funny thing enough, a lot of the best scares and the jumps and the moments in this movie actually happened to Jamie Lee Curtis's character. So, right. she does play a role, even if her plot, even if her point in the plot is not as deep as some of the other characters i will agree with you though i would have absolutely been completely okay with more father malone Hal holbrook is genius and i would have been completely okay if he deepened his storyline a little bit more but that being said 
the the overall movie is still great. If I was going to say, if you want to improve upon, you want to make it even better than it is, give Hal Holbrook more to do. I would completely agree with you there. Yeah, maybe maybe like taking taking Janet Lee's character Kathy down like a bunch of notches, like almost combining her and the mayor's story into one, and like really, and that sounds crazy because Janet Lee's a complete legend. Like it really wasn't. I could see it's uh it's it's John Carpenter kind of wielding all of his powers like he puts his wife in as the lead of the movie and gives her a lot of screen time like a lot maybe that has something to do with why it feels a little uh uneven weighted wise at least for me that makes a lot of sense and then he goes well uh you know Jamie Lee is my ingenue of course I'm going to bring her in oh can you get your mom by any chance oh great we have two of the most important scream queens right now you know, in the same movie together, why that's a no brainer. Let's have that. So I could see him just going, I'm going to pull from all my resources right now and just wield my power. And that's probably why, I mean, you look at all these iconic names down the line. That's probably why this movie goes down in history as, as a lot of directors, favorite horror films, or, you know, a big standout of a horror film. Cause you do have a lot of heavy hitters in here. But it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I could, I, I, I dare say I could do a rewrite of the living dead. I wouldn't change much in, in terms of atmosphere. Uh, certainly wouldn't change the score one note. Uh, it was amazing, you know, but but yeah, I could see myself reworking this film a little bit. And maybe if, you know, I, I have a feeling if John Carpenter hadn't been married to Adrian Barbeau, the story would be a little bit different. She serves a function. She totally does. She writes, She is the voice of the town. But I didn't need as much of her story as I needed of other things. Now, before we move on to other things, we got to talk about the scares. So tell tell me, Damon, because there's 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 a lot of actually for for a movie that where the premise is a fog rolls into town and inside that fog are uh, are murderous uh, pirate ghosts, uh, which sounds corny on the top, but actually the way it's played out, I think is super cool, don't yeah. you? Yeah, it is really well done. It, you know, from the very one of my favorite again, what set what really kind of set the stage for this movie for me as a kid and then even to this day is that opening scene or not opening scene, but the opening moment when you meet the the people in the seagrass and they actually have the first encounter with the Elizabeth Dane, you know, kind of reborn in this fog and, and Blake's been coming on the ship to kill uh, the people on the seagrass. And it's just a really well done scene where this fog bank rolls in. There's a great moment. I almost picked this for my favorite line where Stevie Wayne is on the radio and she says, and to the men of the seagrass, be aware there's a fog bank rolling in off the, whatever the coastline, whatever. And, and and the one of the guys on the seagrass is like, there ain't no fog bank. And he kind of looks around, looks back and then he sees, he's like, Hey, there's a fog bank out there, <laughs> but it's just a great, like that. Yeah. When, they, cause they got, you know, they're, they're kind of like the shadowy figures. You don't really see yeah. them and you see like the, the kind of shadowy outlines of these ghosts. And then they've got these like haunting glowing red eyes, which again, you know, sounds cheesy, but when you do it, it that, cheesy, when, when you do it, yeah, it's not at all. Because and then when they do finally reveal them, and you see the leprosy, and you see the grossness of their skin, and like the the maggots and things crawling around on them, and the seaweed, oh, it's a a great effect. You know, when they actually do get close up on these characters, uh, I have a, a Captain Blake figure action figure from NECA on my wall right now because I love this movie so much. Uh, but yeah, it's great. It's it's a it's a different kind of scare. There are jump scares. In this movie absolutely and actually we're going to talk about when we get to the categories one of my favorite scares is a jump scare but there's also just like this creepy 
element of these particular ghosts because they're not again it's not they're they're ghosts they're 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 pirate ghosts but they're they're not slashers they're not it's not your typical horror film in that way they're not you know they're not chasing our characters they just kind of show up and come after you and there's no stopping them it's not like you're gonna fight back and it's not you're gonna fight back and stop these ghosts like if they get you you're fucked like there's really no better way to say it like you know what i mean i like that you know once you've opened the door and the fog's got a hold of you it's already too late like that's kind of the way i feel about it i think you know it it hits on two levels i think for it hits for the sensibility of the the viewership at the time they hadn't seen anything quite like that um so so i think it, it was scary on that level and i and i and i'm I'm sitting and it's hooked up to my sound system and anytime like a, a hand comes out of the fog with a hook or whatever to grab somebody the 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 audio levels jump to such an um, like a, an alarming height like really it goes from like normal volume normal volume to like rah, i mean so loud so crazy that i think audiences at the time that were still getting used to the idea of of jump scares uh, in that respect, were just they—they they must have been pissing their pants. I mean, I guarantee <laughs> you, there were some pissed pants when they saw this in the movie theater because that—the loudness of the scares, uh, which nowadays would get people. Maybe it's—it still gets plenty of people because you're getting caught by surprise. Um, but but I think less pe- more people are like us. They're a little desensitized to that stuff. But the, the other the other thing that I thought was so brilliant was when you do see the pirates, they are still obscured by darkness they are yeah. still obscured by shadows there's they're silhouettes with red eyes and you go well i've seen that no you, if you have seen it you've seen a take of what was done here because this did it perfectly yeah this did it so well you see just enough you don't see too much if you would have seen these if these pirates would have gone in the full light i guarantee you this film would not have the same effect as it has on people because you're all you're trying to fill in the blanks in your mind with what they really really look like you only get the glimpses of them and i just i can't be i I can't even put my finger on it it's just executed perfectly and i was very envious of that and i think of another movie that again it's gonna it's gonna make some people clutch their pearls i don't like the original blade runner i've watched every version of it and i just i'm not my kind of movie i just it's, it's i find it uninteresting but i can tell you this Blade Runner has some of the best production design I've ever seen in a movie ever. I can't pretend like it's not. I'm like, man, I will watch this just to watch the way these sets are built, the way the miniatures are built, the way the uh, the matte paintings are in the background. Like, man, this is incredibly well done. The Fog has some of the best shadow figures I've ever seen. Just the execution is perfect. Like, you couldn't get it better today, which sounds crazy. You go, what are you talking about? We got all this technology now. now Something about all the elements coming together make the pirates truly ominous, truly scary, truly dreadful. And I got to I got to give it up to that for a movie that didn't like blow me away and didn't, you know, you know, shiver me timbers. It was damn it was damn effective work. The pirates were really good for for a concept that in my head was like, how would that be scary? It came across incredibly well. Yeah, it is. Uh, One last thing I want to touch on before we get to our categories for this movie. Another reason why I love the fog and I kind of I didn't really think about this too deep before the show. But as we're talking, it kind of occurred to me. One of the reasons why I like this movie is because one trope of horror films that that is that that stands the test of time, and and this is ninety eight percent of horror films. And truth be told, it makes sense why you do this, which is 
eventually the evil is defeated and the good guys win. That's pretty much the plot of 98% of horror films, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, occasionally, I mean, even one of our favorite films, shared films of all time, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, even then the girl gets away, you know what I mean? Like at the end, the girl gets away. Now, one of the things that is most terrifying about certain films is when they don't get away. There's a few films where evil wins out. Now, the fog is not necessarily that evil wins out because Jamie Lee and, you know, and, and Tom Atkins character don't get murdered, but ultimately the ghosts get revenge and they come back and they do exactly what they came back to do. At the very beginning of the movie, they say six must die as payback for crashing the ship and killing their people. And, and they take those lives. They kill those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the very end, when you think they've been vanquished and, and they, you know, they, they think it's over, they come back for father Blake they, or their father, uh, uh, father Malone. They Malone, come back yeah. for father Malone. And, and, you know, you find out that like the gold was used to form this giant cross for the church and they come back and they claim him. And that's how basically the film comes to an end is they claim father Malone, uh, which is the one character you kind of assumed all along would survive because he's the one guy who actually felt guilty about what his grandfather had done. Uh, I love that. I love that. It doesn't leave you with the film. You think you're going to see, you think that they're going to defeat the ghosts and the ghosts are going to fade back into the fog and they're going to go away, but they don't, they actually accomplish what they set out to do, which is to kill six people and to take back the gold that was stolen from them. And I think that is, at its core, it is so original because you just don't see that. Even today, you don't see that. I mean, you might see a film that sets up a sequel where somebody thinks they vanquished a haunted house of ghosts, and then you find out that, ooh, there's actually still a ghost, or like every Nightmare on Elm Street movie ends with like a hint that there's going to be a sequel, and that's fine. But I'm saying that at the end of the day, still evil doesn't win out. You know what I mean? Evil doesn't win the day. This is a film where, if you really think about it, evil won. I mean, they, they, and I don't even know if it's evil. I mean, these are people who were betrayed. I mean, in a way, the ghosts, when you actually think about what was done to them, you're kind of like, yeah, they actually deserve to get some revenge. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, they accomplished what they set out to do. They were tortured spirits. They said they were going to get their six and they got their six. So, what, and what I think would have happened in a modern movie is, let's say, just for fuck's sake, that, they decide Father Malone, yes, is the main character, and they focus a little bit more on him. They would have tried to look for a way to, like, lift the curse or break the curse or whatever, you know. Oh, like, we've got some documents. We've got some – there's this old thing or – you know, that it kind of would have become that, and that actually would have sucked. That yeah. actually wouldn't have been good. Um, you know, uh, this movie didn't didn't frighten me or anything like that, but that really would have bored me, like, them just trying to figure that out. What ultimately the father is doing and and what would have been great in a more fleshed out version of his character arc would have been like, uh, you know, and and part of his story, by the way, is he he reads that his father or great grandfather or something had had a lot to do with this, the death of uh, Blake and, and and the people on the ship. So he feels the the weight and the guilt of that. And in the end of the at the end of the movie, he brings the gold cross to Blake and and he's like, I'm going to sacrifice myself because that's the right thing to do. You need the sixth body. It's my body. That's what's supposed to happen. That's the right thing to do. And and he's there and he's face down. With, he, he's he's facing off with Blake and, and Blake's and him are about to, you know, explode into some weird magical shit. And uh, and he's saved by Nick Castle. And so you think, and it looks like, oh, so you got him right away at the right perfect time, and then and and uh, and and uh, and Blake is destroyed, and all is well. No, 
all is not well until they get their six. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. They're going to get their sixth body. So when all is calm and all everybody's gone back away, uh, Father Malone walks uh, through the chapel and they're back again and they take him. And yeah. that's what's supposed to happen. And I would love a modern version of of this story where that ending stays intact because yeah. that's I like shit like that. I love shit like that. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, phenomenal description, exactly. Like, you think it's over, you think it's done. It's not done. They came for their six, and they're not done until their six are gone. And and, and again, you're absolutely right. Father Malone, you know, he wants to sacrifice himself. He's giving himself over to say that, you know, my family screwed you you over. I'm willing to sacrifice myself. And again, it's, it's a great, it's just a great plot. And like I said, I love a good plot of a movie, and this is such a great little perfectly self-contained story it takes place over 24 hours in a small little town on the coast of california and it's a great little ghost story it's just a great in self-contained ghost story and you know i know john carpenter had actually said like he'd actually thought about making this into a series of like anthology series not like based on this one story but call it the fog and you know kind of tell different like creepy ghost stories and that would be the tv show and that's fine but in a way i'm glad they never sequelized this movie because then you kind of ruin it like why would Blake and his men come back again. You know what I mean? Like, why would they come back? Oh, I forgot my, I forgot McDonald's. Shit. Like, let's go get McDonald's. Uh, why would they come back again? The <laughs> fact that it's all self-contained in this story is so well done. And again, the fact that they complete their mission, exactly what they set out to do, they do. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not, they're not on a mission to kill certain people that they're wanting their six lives as payback for what was done to them. And so, the fact that Father Malone, again, you get a great character arc with Father Malone sacrificing himself, but you also ultimately, the 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 the, the spirits, the ghosts, the unsettled spirits, are settled. They go through what they su- are supposed to go through. They finish what they're supposed to finish, and I love that about this movie that you don't get the ending you expect. I will digress for a second here because, and this is very relevant to what you, what you're talking about. So my favorite slasher franchise of all time, no secret Friday the 13th. I've watched every single one of them and they've all missed the point. (laughs) They've all, all of them have even the beginning, even the first one is that at, at the heart of it all, Jason Voorhees is a ghost story and that's, and, and it, but the problem is it's a slasher. And so what the fog does is so brilliant. It's going no, like the ghost must have its revenge. It's a, it's a it's a it's a tortured spirit, and and there there's you know some accidental lay uh, 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 overlay with that in the Friday Thirteenth series, but they're missing that. And if I were to do a Friday the Thirteenth, it would one hundred percent be a ghost story, and I could use the fog as a good uh, template, a good place to start. Because ultimately, you cannot beat a ghost. You just can't. Uh, they tried in part seven, and we'll get to that at some point. But damn it, they were close right there. Uh, otherwise, like the ghost is going to get theirs unless you have some real secret power. Father Malone was a priest <laughs> with with a whole church and a whole bunch of things. He could have found a way. He couldn't find a way. The, the ghost will have its day, and that is ultimately what is satisfying about the story. Uh, so yeah, somebody give me, give me the money and time and the ability to pitch to LeBron James so I can get my damn Friday the 13th movie out there. Cause I, <laughs> it's a ghost story. Damn it. Yeah, no, I agree. It's absolutely, it's absolutely great. And like I said, I love a good story. This film has a good story and has a great ending. All right. 
Let's get to our categories as we do each and every week here on Rewind to the Living Dead. We're going to kick things off with best performance. There are a lot of good performances, actually, in this movie, in my opinion. Uh, A lot of great performances in this movie. As we said, they did not uh, spare any cost on the great cast. Uh, A lot of iconic actors in this movie. So, Patrick, for you, what was the best performance in The Fog? Well, I suppose it's no secret at this point. I chose Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. Um, by the way, uh, something I didn't mention when we were talking about the story, everybody in this town's got a fucking drinking problem. Like he's, <laughs> he starts like drunk as shit <laughs> and everybody else is drinking and, or drunk at some point or talking about somebody who's drunk, but father, Holbrook, I, I, what ha- or what, how Holbrook does so well during the film is he's, he's, he's actually drinking himself kind of into a stupor without being a comical drunk, but like he you can tell from the start from when he's from when he uh, first finds the book and reads the tale, um, he first of all, he drops his drink because it's so shocking. But he picks up more drinks after that. Don't you worry. <laughs> and he keeps drinking throughout the film from the guilt, from the guilt of it all. But it doesn't turn into a comical, drunken performance. Uh, there's a there's a tad bit of co- uh, comedy to it. But there's also this kind of hopelessness to it where he's like, I'm just going to drink myself to death because I know what's coming. And I, there's not much we can really do about it. Um, you know, we, we, uh, other than me, put myself in front of everybody else to sacrifice more deaths coming. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to drink myself until, until I'm taken to the briny deep. And, uh, but he does it with such a great, great layer uh, layers. And, and he's a really great actor. And the way he reads the story, you're kind of, you're sucked into him. You're pulled into him. It's, uh, it's really well done. It's good stuff. Hal Holbrook, killer performance it's weird you say that i would say uh, what's funny about it is you're right he doesn't turn into a sloppy drunk but he's drinking and uh this sounds weird to say this but there's a sadness to him yeah, there's yes. a sadness no, to him. Like there's a there's a like he real like at no point and I love that you brought that up earlier. At no point is he like let's fix this, let's break the curse. He's basically saying from the very offset, we did this, we're fucked. Like that's basically yeah. his opinion. Like we did this to these people, we deserve whatever happens to us. Like he's kind of basically you know resigned himself for death. There's a uh, sadness to that because he's like oh I can't believe we did this. Like that man, I love it, that. I'm telling you that story could have just blossomed even more than it was. It was good. It was good in the way it was, but I just wanted more of it. It was so delicious. Yeah, it was so good. Uh, My best performance in this movie goes to the great Tom Atkins, the phenomenal character actor who is uh, in so many great horror films, uh, particularly of course, Halloween three season of the witch. And of course, night of the creeps as well. I am a devoted Tom Atkins fan. I love Tom Atkins to death, uh, but he is great in this movie. He, he plays the, the kind of the male lead in a way. I mean, I know how Holbrook is really the lead, but he's kind of like the, 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 the macho, you know, the, 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 you know, the kind of the, the, the beefier dude role. Uh, but he does it well. Cause he's great. One of the things I love about Tom Atkins and it kills me, that he didn't get, and I don't know that he wanted a bigger career, but it kills me he didn't get a bigger career because this guy really does have like true acting chops. But beyond horror films, he's got great comedic timing. He's got great, like you know, great reactive uh, timing. He's got uh, great physical presence. Uh, I just love Tom Atkins, and I think he does a really good job in this role. And and he and he does it in a way that he expresses emotions like, you know, when he meets Jamie Lee Curtis, when he picks her up as a hitchhiker, they're kind of joking and laughing and having a good time. And then, you know, they have kind of like that romantic moment in bed where he's talking about her travels and he's looking through her art book. And that's kind of like the, you know, the I don't know, the romantic part, I guess. 
Uh, but then, like, when he gets on this mission to find out what happened to his friends on the seagrass, and he goes out and finds them, like, you can see this this sense of dread in his in his in his voice, in his eyes, in his reactions. That he's like worried about his friends, and, and again, these are all things that a, a great actor should be able to do. But th- I just love what he does in this film because it does help carry the performance. Uh, away from again and you're talking about you know could we have used more Hal Holbrook sure absolutely but I love that they gave this kind of you know gravitas to, to Tom Atkins carrying that kind of male lead in this movie he would have been a great guy to have like a like a Charles Bronson-esque like Death Wish franchise you know what I mean he's just got like a stoicism about him a seriousness about him he got a good jawline you know he just he's got good leading man looks and presence and uh, and he puts a lot of it on display here. Uh, it, it is you know, and maybe he's just maybe he's just a guy who preferred doing horror movies. You know, like some actors just live for the things they want to do. And I, it, Tom Atkins has done exactly what he's wanted to do for a long, long time. Doesn't, doesn't seem like he's upset about his career at all. I think he just picks. He, this is the this is where he wants to stay. And it, more more for us. Yeah, he's phenomenal. All right, let's go to best line. Now, there are a lot of great lines, and it's kind of funny. I know your line. I know my line. Not, neither <laughs> one of our lines have actually anything to do with the plot of this <laughs> Not movie. Not a damn thing. Uh, but I love the, I love the dialogue. I, I'm a, a Carpenter and, and Deborah Hill really do write some great dialogue, and, and this goes for all their movies, from The Thing, Halloween. I mean, there's just so much great dialogue. And... Again, what I love about this is it's multi-layered dialogue. It's not all, again, this is a, in a way, if you think about it, it's a very sad movie, you know, kind of a sad movie about these ghosts coming back for revenge and how they were wronged a hundred years ago, but they do manage to inject some humor, some kind of, you know, some fun moments, some, some, you know, you know, obviously some of the, you know, the action chasey kind of scenes towards the end. Uh, but I, I love that this film does inject great dialogue and it's not just dour, moody dialogue which you get in a lot of these kind of movies this is like there's some fun lines and and your line is that and i think my line when you hear mine you'll understand that as well uh because i I almost picked hal holbrook you know reading part of the diary because man he's so good in that delivery when he's reading the diary from from uh, from his grandfather about what they did to blake and it's just it's it's great because you know today what would happen in today's movie you would be getting a flashback that's exactly what you would get you get a flashback there you don't need it hearing how Holbrook read that diary is so yeah. damn good and it captures your imagination so well you don't need a flashback just listen to the man read the book and it's damn good uh, and I love that they didn't do that that being said the dialogue is great in this movie so for you personally set up your best line from the fog well our our lead of the film who we barely talk about uh Stevie played by Adrian Barbeau uh she does the overnight uh she does kind of like weather reports on the radio and she she plays some music she kind of keeps the sailors that are out in the bay company all night long to make sure everybody's uh you know safe out there um but you know it's a night shift so like a lot of people on the night shift she sleeps during the day but her little son uh, is off by the shore. He finds a cool piece of wood and he's got a shower. And I, the reason I picked it is because it just reminds me of what my Saturday mornings are like around here. I desperately want to sleep in and my kid comes over and wakes me up. And this is, uh, this is what Stevie has to say to her young child. Mom! Mom, come on, get up. Look what I found. Mm-hmm. I love you. Sometimes you're a real pain. Sure, Mom. But look it. First it was a gold coin, and then it turned into this neat piece of wood. This is one of those times. 
<laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> I mean, I, I it's so genuine. Like I'm like, oh my god. Any parent who listens to that goes, yeah, I know exactly how you're feeling there. And I love how she goes. She goes, you're a real pain. He goes, sure, mom. And he just like just jumps right into the other thing. And I was like, yeah, that is exactly how it goes. As soon as I saw your favorite line, I was like, this is such a dad pick. Like this is yeah, I, this it's a is, very dad. Pick. It's a very dad pick because I know I guarantee you've had situations just like this in your own home. Uh, I'll have a situation like this tomorrow morning. We're recording us on a Friday night, Saturday morning. The kids don't have to go to school. They are just going to wake me up. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> so now my favorite line actually comes from early in the movie in the interaction when Jamie Lee Curtis first gets picked up as a hitchhiker by Nick Castle, played by the great Tom Atkins. And their dialogue is just so genuine. And I love this interaction. And I love Tom Atkins' delivery. And this is a, one of the reasons why... He got my best performance because his delivery in this scene is so great. And it's just, it's just perfect. It's just, I mean, I, if I write one day when we write our own horror movie, I'm going to somehow steal this bit of dialogue. It's just so genuine. I just love this interaction. So this is Jamie Lee Curtis first getting picked up as a hitchhiker by Nick Castle, played by the great Tom Atkins. Listen, I never hitchhiked before. I just really want to be careful. Can I ask you something? Sure. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird. Thank God. <laughs> the last one I had was so normal, it was disgusting. <laughs> I love that. He's like, are you weird? He's like, yes. Yes, I am weird. I, just, I was like, that's so genuine because that's the exact yeah. same thing I would say. If someone said, are you weird? I'd be like, uh, yeah, yeah, I am weird. Actually, yeah. I'm really weird. I'd be really worried if you said you weren't. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I totally relate to that. Yeah, I, lo uh, I love I that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, just, I love that. I love that. No, it's it's fantastic. Uh, uh, re that's really maybe one of the top lines I think in the whole movie. Um, but I did want to give an honorable mention to Janet Lee and Nancy Key's characters. So they're kind of planning the 100th anniversary of the uh, of the entire thing. Uh, and I didn't pull any one particular clip uh, for or for for the notes for Damon, but uh, it, it they have so much great back and forth, and it's almost like. It's almost like a Coen Brothers-esque like wordplay thing between the two of them. We probably should have pulled something from them. That's my fault for not thinking of it. But I did want to give them an honorable mention because I think that pretty much their entire uh, screen time interaction between the two of them is very clever and witty and sort of uh, of the times, but still I could respect the uh, the verbal gymnastics that they were playing. Oh, I love the line when, when Janet Lee is giving her like all the different orders she needs to do for the day and she keeps saying, yes, ma'am. And she's like, Sandy, when you say yes, ma'am, it sounds like screw you. And she goes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. it's good. It's such a clever line. It is. It's such a great, it's such a great interaction between like boss and employee. Like you can totally see like that's a real relationship right there. Like they play that so well. Uh, yeah. All right. Best scare in the fog. There's a lot of different kinds of scares in this movie, which I enjoy. You do get some jump scares. You get some kind of like atmospheric scares. You get some, again, the shadowy figure scares, however you want to define that. Uh, so, Patrick, what is your best scare in this movie? I went for the one that actually like genuinely got me. And it's right there in the uh, in your best line where where uh, um, Nick Castle's picking up. Uh, young Elizabeth on the on the hitchhiking road. It's a dark road. You know, they're kind of having a, a a bit of a flirtation in the truck and all that stuff. And things seem to be going well. Then out of nowhere, and I'm then when I tell you out of nowhere, out of nowhere, the windshield and windows completely blow out of the truck, which 
you don't even understand at that moment why that happens. And it's so jarring and so loud and so crazy. I was just like, what the hell? <laughs> like, yes, that was crazy. What just happened? And like, it was just, it was such a good and effective jump scare. And of course, again, the sound design where the, the, the audio level goes from here to 3000 and you, it just makes you pop out of your seat. Yeah. That's a great one. That's a, that's a great scare. And you're absolutely right. That, I think that's probably one of the first times I saw this movie. I was like, oh, shit. Even as a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, shit. it just like comes out of nowhere. It yeah. really, really gets you. It jolts you for sure. My best scare, and again, I, I keep going back to this, and people who listen to the show are probably sick of me saying this, but sometimes my favorite scares are the most obvious ones. And I think obvious scares work because they're obvious. I mean, I don't know a better way to say it. Like, they work because you know they're coming, but they're still great. When they work. Now, there's some other movies when they do it, it's obvious it doesn't work, but there's some movies as I mentioned in the past, I always bring up Satan's Slaves as a great moment in that scene where you know it's going to be a scare, but man, it just works so well. Uh, mm -hmm. This one kind of the same way. It's after Nick and Elizabeth go to investigate the seagrass. They find it, and they and they find it being really weird. It's all covered in salt water, and it looks like the, the boat's been turned upside down, except the entire yeah. boat is completely dry, and it's just a really weird, odd scene. The, the mercury barometers drop to like, you know, 20 degrees, which seems impossible considering it's, you know, California coast or whatever. And they go downstairs and, and you see this locker open by itself and the stuff all falls out and it kind of jumps and scares Elizabeth. It's kind of sitting there waiting on Nick. But then it's a second later that the body comes falling out behind yeah. her. And it's got his eyes gouged out and it falls on top of her and it scares the shit out of her. I love that scare because they get you with the, the, the locker. The mm -hmm. locker, you think, is the scare. You see the locker door moving by itself, and you see it fall out. You're like, oh, they, they're trying to get me. And then, boom, a second later, the body falls. And it's just a, a well-timed, a really well-timed scare. That's a classic misdirection scare. So you you and it, even in the lead up, right? They're just kind of shooting the shit, and they're trying to understand what's going on in the in the boat. And you can see the locker uh, the the locker handle starting to move, and you're like, ah, oh, here we go. And then it opens up, and then kind of nothing happens, and you're like, all right, well, that was a weird little scare. And then the as soon as your mind is like resting from that scare, it hits you with the actual scare. And again, the volume jumps jumps way up, and and this body with the and it's probably some of the. Uh, actually, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we'll talk about this in the next category, but the body jumps out and, and scares the shit out of you. And you're like, okay, what the hell? Okay. Wow. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. It was really well done. Well, with that being said, let's talk about best gore in this yeah. movie because this isn't the, this isn't the goriest movie, but there are some great gory moments is I guess what I'm saying. You know, it's not the film where yeah, you're just you're covered in blood. But there are some good gore movements. So, again, we just talked about it. I'll let you go ahead and set it up. What was your favorite gore from this movie? Well, we're talking about this little moment down there uh, below deck, and uh, the, the body falls on Jamie Lee. And I just picked uh, I picked that body falling on her because he's got the eyes on this guy are gouged out, and it really wasn't something you were expecting. Like, the movie doesn't set you up for anything that is like that to that point. So when you see the body fall on her with the eyes gouged out, it is, uh, it's effective. It's a, it was effective gore. Yeah, it was good gore and, and it was good, uh, a good kind of cool different way to like show a dead body, you know, not a ton of blood yeah. or anything. It's just literally his eyes are gone. Like not gouged, not yeah, like weird, not grossly gouged out, gone. Like literally look like they were yeah. plucked from their sockets. Like it was creepy. Yeah. yeah. Really creepy. Uh, my favorite gore, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier in the show. It was when they actually did the close up on the fishermen, meaning the, the ghosts of Blake and his men. And you see their kind of, you know, leprosy ridden skin with like 
seaweed and and maggots crawling through it and it's just really gross and you're kind of like like when they give you that good close-up for a moment and they don't overdo it you mentioned how well the shadow effects are in this movie and it's really well done and it's great kind of atmosphere in terms of the dread that they present as the ghosts you're not seeing them too much but when you do get up close and see them it's pretty grody when you see the maggots and and you see their their kind of rotting skin uh and the effects are really well done and again no blood no blood and i'm fine with that i don't think there's a drop of blood in this movie really outside of like maybe what you see on a blade or something at some point but uh yeah yeah, it's literally just that that kind of creepy gross uh skin of blake and his men when you finally see you're like ugh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no i i, I uh yeah I, we talked about it earlier i loved what they did with uh with with the pirates or the what are they, I, I, they... they're settlers i mean they're just settlers uh, they're yeah, settlers okay. on Settl- a clipper ship yeah, I, mean, I mean i think pirates it kind of reminds me of like scooby-doo like there's a very scooby-doo vibe there yeah. even then that sounds corny and cheesy but it's like the best version of a scooby-doo uh ghost pirate ship ship person settler thing whatever yeah yeah absolutely all right so as we close out here on the show, as we do each and every week on Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to talk about Is It Scary? Uh, this is also a horror movie podcast, and we're going to talk about horror movies and if they scare us. So, Patrick, at the end of the day, is the fog scary? I would say it's not. And 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 I think for the times, yes, of course it was. If, if I'm going... Um, contextually for the ninth for 1980 yeah i think i think and i i even got some actual 1980s witnesses going yeah that shit fucking scared me <laughs> so yes of course it's it was scary for its day but it's it's a movie i think i could even show to my son now um at six years old it, we talked about uh monster squad earlier he loves monster squad now and watches it all the time and he wants to watch it what, three four times a week um, I think that movie has more legitimate scares in it than The Fog does. It's just not that kind of scary. It's it's more atmospheric. It's more about the tale. It's more about kind of uh, everything else, like cl- almost classical, like 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 a bunch of fishermen would sit around and tell this tale, and that's that's what it would be. So to me, uh, in a classical sense, you could call it scary. It certainly is a horror film and, and done in a very classical style, but I don't see a lot of scare anywhere in it. I would disagree on that point. I think it is scary when you, again, because I think there's a lot of different ways to consider what's scary. And I think the atmospheric scary and the tone of this film is what's scary. Is it terrifying to the point where you're going to be hiding your eyes and you can't look at the screen? No, it's not that kind of movie, but Like I said, there's a scene, as I mentioned earlier, the scene where Hal Holbrook is just reading from this diary of what they did to these people. There's just a real creepiness to it. And it's really like, again, it's just like, it's just so like in the moment, if you were sitting in your house, the lights out, maybe a couple candles lit and you're watching this movie and you're hearing Hal Holbrook read that story and you're just waiting for something to happen and you just kind of feel this sense of dread creeping around the corner that's what works about this movie. It's not the scariest movie in the sense that you're going to be, you know, peeing your pants terrified and you're going to be hiding your eyes if you're watching it in the theater. But it's just got that sense of dread and that kind of sense of scare to it, especially, again, the atmospheric stuff. When you talk about the fog rolling in, you talk about the kind of dark look of the town. You talk about this kind of like little bay town that's cut off from the rest of the world, which I enjoy. This doesn't take place in Los Angeles or some big sprawling metropolis. This takes place in a little tiny, you know, coastal town. 
Uh, and it's, you know, everyone knows each other, you know, that kind of thing. And like, they're all kind of, you know, coming together to, to deal with this fog and these ghosts coming after them. And so I would say on that level, yes, it's absolutely scary. I would say if you saw it back in the day, 1980, 1981 or whatever, when it first came out, it was definitely scary. Uh, yeah. does it hold up in that regard now? No, but I think it still holds up in the regard of like, it's got that good say again, I keep using the word dread is a word we use a lot on the show, but I think yeah. it, it sets the dread really well. It qualifies as scary. Don't get me wrong. Like it qualifies in this. Like you wouldn't put this in like uh you know the fantasy category or something. Like it 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 falls into the scary movie category. Um, but like another thing I thought about too. I thought, and it would be a very different movie. And mind you, you know this is sort of a rewrite of the Living Dead situation. But like if I'd gotten more of the uh the Blake and his crew, and and really like the like the fog rolls in and it's just sort of like almost becomes a slasher in a sense where it's like around the corner is always going to be another ghost looming and lurking and, and taking out another member of the town. Um, I think it would have, it would have raised the scary stakes a little bit. Um, and for guys like you and me, sophisticated movie watchers, if, if I, if I dare, you know, pat ourselves on the back that way, moments like when father Malone is reading from the book and telling the tale or the great intro done where the, where the, where the guy's sitting around the campfire and he's telling the kids, the scary stories, uh, that works for me on a different level. It's, it's more of a titillation than scare. It's just sort of like, Ooh, that's cool. That's fun. That's intriguing. It's drawing me in. Um, but like, Again, my six year old be like, Dad, can you fast forward the boring part? You know, <laughs> let's get to the let's get to the pirates like killing people. Like like you know, they, they want the they want that that immediacy. So yeah, I mean I I, I don't want to rewrite this movie because I, I think it's sacred ground for a lot of people. But if I'd have had a little I think I think because it was done so well, a little bit more of the of Blake and his crew would have upped the scare factor a little bit more. But is the dread there? Yes, of course, the dread is there. Um, I know we talked about it before where you can have a movie that has no traditional sense of gore or violence or anything. But if the dread is there, it does classify as a scary movie. And this classifies in the horror genre 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. For that reason alone, like I said, I think it works for me. And it is an all-time classic. And like I said, it's a John Carpenter film. It's one of John Carpenter's best films. Uh, it is one of my all-time favorite horror films. You know, when I think about my all-time favorite horror films, I think about how have I spent my money to support this movie or to, to, to show how much of a fan I am of this movie. And I have like four Fog t-shirts and I have a, a Captain Blake action figure hanging up on my wall behind me. Uh, so I am an unabashed fog <laughs> fan. Uh, I love this movie. It is, it is right up there. Like I said, when I, if you may, if you're, you're nailing me down to say, Hey, what's your top 50 horror films of all time? This would 110% be in that list without a doubt. And uh, I'm glad we got to talk about it. Cause like I said, we've done a lot of episodes of the show. Haven't had a chance to do a carpenter film. And I'm glad we did this one no. because again, I know Halloween's kind of the one everyone talks about. We'll eventually get to Halloween. I'm sure we'll, praise that movie left right and center as it deserves to be praised uh but this is kind of a fun one because it wasn't his biggest movie it wasn't his most well-known movie it was his second movie and so uh it's a follow-up and those follow-ups are tough to do man we got to be honest when you do a halloween the next film all eyes are watching and and this to me delivers i mean it's not halloween but it delivers and and i love that yeah absolutely it's a it's a it's a really well done piece of work i think you can sit down uh if you're if you're a film buff just in general uh he does some he's a pretty amazing directing overall i mean the guy the guy john carpenter is 
100% without a doubt a legend in the film business. Yeah, and let me close out on this before we get out of here. They did do a remake of this in 2005 starring Maggie Grace, Tom Welling, and some other people. Uh, do yourself a favor. If you see that anywhere uh, on TV or you happen to run across a Blu-ray or a DVD <laughs> or something, pick it up, throw it in the trash, and ask them if they got the 1980 original because the remake is horrible. Horrible. <laughs> horrible. I I also didn't bother with that. <laughs> you should watch it just to you should watch it just to understand. Just to I know understand. it's not anywhere near the level of this film. I can oh, guarantee it's that. so bad. It's so I think bad. my wife went and saw it one like when it first came out and she was like, God, that was a really stupid movie. And I was like, Yeah, I could tell you. From what's the funny, what's funny is the fog is so great, but I could see how like you talked about with the Father Malone stuff. Like you could remake I'm not saying you should. I'm saying you could remake this movie and with better effects and things of the day, you could make a good version. You could make a modern day version of this that would be just like they did with Halloween. Like they, you know, they, they, they did a yeah. 2018 Halloween that obviously is different than the original Halloween. You could do an updated version of the fog and do it tremendously. And it would be terrifying in my opinion, but that version was a pile of dog shit. <laughs> so I wouldn't change much about this film other than, you know, uh, emphasizing Father Malone's story a little bit more and yeah. adding in more uh, Blake and his and his crew. Yeah, but if you did that, you could make it. I'm saying you could do that. You could yes, make an updated no, version. Is, this is a remakeable film, weirdly enough, even though I know it is a a lauded classic. It is a remakeable film because there's some there's some there's more potential there than than even what's what you get to see. Um, but yeah, definitely. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't sneeze at this at all. Unfortunately, it was remade at the wrong time, uh, by the wrong people. And it just, uh, yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't get anywhere near that version. Of yeah. I would, I would recommend you not doing that. If you have any sake of sanity to watch that movie. <laughs> All right, with that being said, we're going to get out of here, folks. Obviously, make sure you check us out each and every week here on Rewind to the Living Dead. Make sure you're checking us out on all your favorite podcast platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on Amazon Music. We are on Stitcher. And if you're ever looking for the show individually, you can go find it over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. Uh, if you have questions, comments, anything you want to know about the show or movies that you want to suggest for us to uh, review here on the podcast, uh, please, please, please hit us up on Twitter. You can follow me at Damon Martin and you are at Director Patrick. Folks, want to say a big thank you each and every week for tuning into the show. Uh, we will be back with a new edition of Rewind of the Living Dead one week from today. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace.